Hello, Scouted Football Podcast fans. Welcome back to the pod. Uh, I'd just like to begin by saying I can't believe we're into the home straight of the 2020-21 season. Uh, lighter evenings, Champions League quarterfinals, and actually taking an interest in the promotion and relegation permutations of leagues we ordinarily wouldn't be too fussed about. Um, it truly is a beautiful, beautiful time of the year. Um, in Serie A this season, Juve have been toppled, I think it's safe to say, although that was expected to some extent with Andrea Pirlo taking over with no manager experience of any kind. All things considered, though, I think he's done all right, um, albeit helped by a considerable amount of footballing riches at his disposal. Um, and with 10 games remaining, Inter have a 10-point lead over their city rivals, Milan, and nine wins on the spin in the league. Um, it looks as though Antonio Conte's men are going to be claiming a first Scudetto in about a decade. Um, meanwhile, at the bottom, you've got Crotone, Parma, Cagliari, and Torino, uh, all in dire straits threatened with dropping into Serie B. Um, no prizes then for guessing which league we're discussing this week. It's Serie A. Uh, and that can only mean the one, the only Stephen Ganavas returns to the pod. Um, it's It was Suvlaki Wednesdays with the boys. Um, how was it? Talk us through it. Yeah, so we've gone Greek Wednesdays into Serie A podcast. So I'm covering all aspects of my ancestry in one evening. You love to see it. You do really love to see it. How was the Suvlaki? Was it? It was, it was delightful. We it was delightful. Absolutely. Fair. Okay. Well, we've got a happy Steve on the pod. Then that usually makes <laughs> got a, for a, a full stomach, caffeine in, so we're ready to go. Usually makes for a good recording then. Um, but yeah, Syria in in summary this season. Then um, you know what is what is your experience of watching this campaign? Obviously, from a Juve perspective, you know you don't seem overly despondent that the sort of the run is over. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. For me, it's obviously it's Syria. It's I think uh, there's a lot of doomers that are pretty disappointed with what they've seen this season. But uh, at the end of the day, you win nine Serie A titles in a row. Um, eventually, the cycle comes to an end and someone else is going to win it. You've got Inter, Milan, Napoli, Roma, like other big teams that are trying to win it. And uh, eventually, one of them is going to get good enough. And it's not like uh, Juventus is ceding the title to uh, a terrible team. This inter team is a, a has been a juggernaut this season. They got one of the best coaches in the world. Um, so yeah, it is what it is, I guess. It is what it is. Well, that's that's a very diplomatic way of putting it. Um, but yeah, in terms of just giving everybody sort of a taster of what Serie has been this season, you we're going to sort of break it down just for a little introduction here into winners, losers, um, surprises, and disappointments. Steve, who would your who would your big winners and losers be from this year's campaign? Yes. Yeah, so obviously, Inter is the big winner. They're going to win the title after, I think now, 11 or 12 years uh, without it. I think the the Antonio Conte project has clearly been a success. Um, he's put a, a team together that just works. They've been quite lucky that they've uh, had a, quite a lot of continuity in their squad as well. Not too many injuries, uh, not too much coronavirus, which has affected quite a lot of teams in Serie A. Um, and then other winners, I would say, obviously Atalanta, you got to throw in there because they're looking likely to qualify for the Champions League once again. Although uh, it's hard to say now whether we just expect them to be there these days or whether this is an outstanding season, but uh, we'll chuck them in there. And then, oh, especially when you consider some of the turmoil with the uh, Papu Gomez no, situation. Papu Gomez. Yeah, so yeah. to overcome that and you know still do well in the Champions League as well, we forget. Um, and then the other team I'd probably go is after a lot of false starts in their renewal, AC Milan this season have um, put together, I think, a bit of a 
I, th- I think they're faltering a little bit now with a very young squad, but um, I think they've finally put the pieces together on, on, on building a, a new cycle um, with some quite exciting players that I think will um, continue to get better into the into the coming seasons as they add a couple more little pieces to, to the squad. So, yeah, they're probably the, the top three. Um, but then, obviously, you've got Hellas, Verones, Sassuolo, or some of the mid-table teams that have also done quite well. And, yeah. Well, yes. I mean, in this episode, we're going to discuss the, the standout stats in Serie A this season. And and you mentioning um, Sassuolo there, Steve. Uh, there's one player in particular from Sassuolo who we are going to discuss. Um, but in terms of uh, surprises and disappointments, um, you know, from purely a, a, an optics perspective, but not from a statistical perspective, you know, I, I look at Torino this season, you know, 17th uh, in the table, 24 points, um, you know, very much on the brink. Of uh, of sort of the the, the relegation zone, um, you know, would you say that this team who were sort of perpetually around the seventh to tenth mark for for quite a few years, uh, what's happened there? Because you know you've still got Andrea Belotti, who let's not forget is a very very adept striker. Um, you know what is what what's happened there in, in on the other side of Turin? Well, yeah, there's 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 two teams really that have I think completely um, underperformed this year, and that's Fiorentina and, and Torino. Um, Torino's one's a bit harder to explain because it hasn't been those the complete overhauls that we've kind of seen at Fiorentina who have um, gone into the season with Iacchini who's a pretty average manager then went to Prandelli who had um, problems with his mental health during the season and now they're back with Iacchini um, but Fiorentina have got a much better squad than, than 14th um, and Torino the same it's, yeah, it's quite hard to kind of pin it down they've still got Belotti um, guys like Rincon, Mandragora on loan from Juventus. Yeah, it's really, really difficult to say. So, in terms of uh, losers, I, I, I touched on Juve in the um, in, in the introduction there under Andrea Pirlo. But I mean, at the moment, uh, at the time of recording, Juve have conceded the fewest goals in Serie A. So you can't really say that it's it's been a it's been an absolute shambles of a season, a horrible title defense, just because the Scudetto is not going to be coming back to to the Juventus Stadium. But would you say, based on the past decade, that you know there's there's perhaps for the first time in a while you're putting Juve in the losers column? Yeah, well, I think when you don't win the title, the ten in a row, it's a big disappointment, and you you probably do have to go straight in the in the loser pile. But I think. Yeah, it's been a strange season. I was actually looking at the um, expected goal difference for Juventus' last season with Allegri, uh, the season with Sarri, and now with um, Pirlo. And uh, in Allegri's last season, Juventus were actually, I think, fifth in expected goal difference per 90 at 0.58. They were third highest in Sarri's season with 0.71. And they actually have the best expected goal difference in Serie A this season at 1.05. So I was very surprised by that. Um, But yeah, I think there's definitely, you know, a lot of uh, Peel or Doomers. I think he he will remain as long as the team makes the Champions League. But yeah, it's hard to launch a big defense of him. I think he has made some, some errors this season. He's been quite tactically inflexible. Um, there's only been a couple of players that he's really managed to get the best out of. I think probably uh, McKenney, maybe Morata and Chiesa, the, probably the three that have performed best under him, and Quadrado. Um, but he kind of struggled with others. Kulusevski's the last few months have just been terrible, um, constantly being played out of position, either as like an out-and-out kind of striker 
or more of a you know number eight kind of player when he really needs to be I think right wing is the position that you're going to get the best out of him yeah and then you've just got kind of a just dysfunctional team going forward and you've got this reliance on you know the energy and hustle of Chiesa uh Quadrado's been sending in some magnificent crosses and getting a few assists Ronaldo having to finish everything that he can and kind of Morata stretching defenses with his running and 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 you know getting a bag of assists as well but you know you can't just rely on you know a few players individual attributes to to win you a bunch of games you need a, a kind of cohesive system but then also on the other hand Peel has kind of been dealt a difficult hand I think you've now had nine players that have got COVID this season uh which I I don't know any other league that's even had nine COVID cases amongst their playing group but Serie A seems to be uniquely incompetent in terms of of dealing with with uh, with COVID, uh, and then he's also had quite a lot of injuries. We've seen Dybala miss pretty much all of 2021 so far. Uh, Alexandro missed a chunk of the start of the season. Demiral delict Quadrado, uh, Artur, Morata. I think even Aaron Ramsey have missed you know some pretty big chunks of the season with injury. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag. But I think if you you go to a manager within their first year and they don't quite, you know, hit the ground running and, and win the league. Um, it's hard to blame them. You maybe need to be a bit more introspective and think, well, did we hire him for one season and then and then get ready to sack him straight away? Or should we, was the whole point of hiring that we needed to give him a bit of time to, to, to get things right? So I think a lot of questions being asked now with whether Allegri might come back and all that. But uh, yeah, I think the the cycle in it, in and of itself is is just about ready to come to a close. Well, I tell you what, if Allegri did come back, that would put an end to the managerial merry-go-round rumor trail that you that you see in English football whenever there there becomes a, a vacancy in England. That the rumors that apparently Allegri's learning English, there'll be there'll be no more. Um, which I'll, I'll be glad to see the back off, to say the least. But yeah, that's a pretty. I mean, it's it's a quite an astute summary, really, of of a season um, which has been in turmoil um because of for obvious reasons but um but for for Juve that it it's not been a, a shocking title defense but just one that has been beset by issues that could befall any club I and mean, we've seen that across Europe this season um with you know Paris Saint-Germain struggling and, and Liverpool's title defense being um not exactly the strongest in recent years so yeah it's been um, it's been in, in terms of this season uh, safeguarding against coronavirus perhaps not the best but in the entertainment stakes a, a, a lot lot better and you're not losing to a scrub team. You're losing to Inter Milan with one of the best coaches and a fantastic squad, a fantastic starting eleven. Um, yeah. Hey, whatever helps you sleep at night. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm just uh, I'm coming up with all the excuses now. Absolutely. Um, but in terms of surprises, uh, we we glossed over that a little bit. Um, has there has been anybody because we you know there was Hellas Verona last season who um, I think caught everybody by surprise under Ivan Juric. Um, has, has there been anybody this season that you've been equally impressed by? Well, I was going to say, as I said with Atalanta, it's hard to be surprised by Sassuolo and Hellas Verona doing well. Um, we've kind of come to expect that Verona just you know continue to be that kind of defensive juggernaut. Um, maybe Benevento would probably be, if I had to pick any team under uh, Pippo Inzaghi, uh, an interesting system. They, they kind of press, press quite high and had a, 2-2 draw against Juve uh, the other day where they were, they were quite good. In terms of players, I would say 
I picked out a couple. Um, oh, they've just signed Adolfo Gaich. Have they? Yeah, yeah, from from CSK from Siska Moscow. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he's got um, two goals in six games. So I mean, good stuff. <laughs> Can you tell who's reading off flash scores as we record? <laughs> <laughs> and then in terms of players, yeah, I had. Um, I think McKenny I had down because I when he arrived from Schalke, I was a little bit confused as to why, but um, Pirlo managed has managed to. Yeah, get quite a lot out of him as an attacking player, which is probably the most surprising thing for me. Um, and then I had Christian Romero at uh, Atalanta, who's had a fantastic season, and he's just proving himself as one of the best kind of, you know, physical dual one-on-one winning everything kind of kind of center back series out there. Um, Bastoni at Inter has become one of uh, Conte's most trusted. Uh, central defenders, which is not an easy thing to do to become a trusted Conte player. But once he trusts you, then he will, uh, you know, fight to the death to, to keep you in the team and play you as many minutes as he can. Um, and then probably the biggest surprise is uh, Gonzalo Villar at Roma, who uh, they picked up out of the second division in Spain, I think in January 2020. And he didn't play much last season, but um, yeah, he's come into the, into the team and played quite a lot of minutes this year. And yeah, it just looks really uh, composed and like, you know, like and, and he looked at right at home in the under 21 Spanish team conducting things from midfield. So he's in that vein and in, in terms of Spanish midfielders that can, can run a game and, and do some lovely progressive passes and interesting things from, from the base of midfield. Unsurprisingly, we're going to start with expected goals um, uh, because Dusan Vlaovic, uh, his non-penalty XG at present at the time of recording is 10.4, which is the joint fifth highest in Serie A behind Cristiano Ronaldo, Romelu Lukaku, Lautaro Martinez, Zlatan Ibrahimovic and level with Edin Dzeko. So, you know, Steve, just rattling off those names there, not exactly an insignificant list. You know, these are the bastions of 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 striker strikerhood I, I mean that's not even a word but it you know they've been they've been excellent over the past decade or so um and and Dusan Vlaovic is is up there with them you know he's got 13 goals in in roughly 2000 Serie A minutes um you know he accounts for 31% of of Fiorentina's non-penalty xg this season you know he's had a very very large influence on on them getting goals and I think without him based on what you were just saying there about sort of disappointments you know they'd be in real real trouble without how consistent he has been yeah I think um per 90 I think he drops down a bit to maybe 12th or 13th but um yeah in a team that hasn't been uh very good yeah he's the the guy that needs to score pretty much um I think he's got 10 non-penalty goals 13 goals in total um, and just been quite consistent in a team that, yeah, as I said, has really, really needed his goals. But he's kind of still a player that I not can't really pinpoint exactly what it is using to turn into like an elite player. He's good off the shoulder, quick, quite tall, um, and has some pretty good penalty box instincts. But I think trying to take that step to um, the, the Kaku level, Martinez, Zlatan, all those guys that you... You rattled off. I think he really needs to develop, um, you know, getting more involved in the play. At the moment, I see him more as a guy that really feeds off things off the shoulder, but doesn't really give you a lot creatively, which I think if you go and look at players like Zlatan Dzeko, 
um, Lukaku. They're, they're giving you a lot more in terms of assists, dropping into the channels um, and, and just working with other players, wingers. Like Vlaovic has a lot of talent around him to, to feed off in Ribéry, Castrovilli. They, they, they've got a good squad. And um, yeah, I think that that's probably the thing he needs to focus on to take that next step. Yeah, obviously Fiorentina in the bottom half of the table, um, but they're also in the bottom half for, in terms of an, a number of stats. Um, so, you know, their possession share, um, the shots on target per 90 um, in the actual table, their 14th. You know, Vlaovic is is, is in the, that top five or six, though, obviously dropping down when you put it into per 90 terms, because obviously he has been so integral. They haven't really been able to play without him. Um but I think the stats aside, you know, using that as sort of a marker, but sort of around that, you know, there's, there's been quite a nice variety to his finishes. I know that he's not really bringing a great deal in terms of the creative side of things, but um, it's, it's similar to, I mean, on, on the Premier League edition of this of this Standout Stats podcast with Mark Carey, um, we discussed uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Um, and and that you know he was constantly getting into good areas on the pitch um, to, to to finish these chances. Um, and with Vlaovic, I think there's I mean there's there's quite a good range in terms of he, I think he's scored one from quite long range against Benevento. Um, quite a lot of them have been one touch, you know, in transition. He scored a delightful chip against Juventus. That's probably that one then. I'm, I'm uh, thinking of not Benevento. No, no, no. There's, there is one against Benevento from like 35 yards that he smacked it. But there's another chip that he did from inside the box against Juventus that was that was quite nice as well. He's got a pretty pretty good left foot. Yeah, when he uh, when he gets onto one. Yeah, and and I mean we, we saw uh, earlier in the week, or it may have been last week, that Stan Collymore was on Twitter describing things as you know oh, all this all this pointless jargon in modern day football, and they were all pretty ordinary terms. But if Stan Collymore is sort of listening to this, then we'd describe him as uh, Dusan Vlaovic as a proper number nine um, because he does have good range, but. Also, uh, sort of on what, what myself and Steve are looking at right now is is um, a shot map of, of Dusan Vlaovic's goals this season. And Steve, I mean, they are pretty much all in a line. Yes, it's a, a straight line from the goal to the penalty spot. And yep. it's about eight, seven or eight goals there. One on the left, that's the chip against Juventus and one outside the box, which was that long range curler against Benevento. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where you want your, want your striker to be, I think. Uh, a few of those were finishes from rebounds, a few cutbacks. But yeah, he's always um, getting in really good positions off the, the last man's shoulder. I think he times his runs quite well. Um, yeah, so in, in that in that sense, playing in a bad team and, and putting up these numbers is quite impressive. What I'm going to describe this as, and I, I've patented this description of, um, of Dusan Vlaovic's goals this season. I'm going to call it a breadcrumb trail. Um, from the penalty spot to the the center of the goal, um, because it it just looks. It, Steve, are you, you going to disagree with me here? I can hear you sighing. Is this is this is this a bad way? Of <laughs> no, it's where it? he feasts. It's, it's where he's, it's where he feasts. Oh, right. so. Okay, I see where we're going now. As soon as I mentioned Suvlaki's, that now we've got we've, we've got food <laughs> on the brain. Um, but yeah, he, he's. He, as a defender, these are the areas that you want to stop strikers getting in. And I'd like to see, actually, um, Vlaovic's conversion rate from this very, very fine sliver of the pitch um, that he that he seems to score all of his goals from. Because, you know, I mean, I haven't included penalties on this on this graphic, but there's, you know, this, there's still seven or eight, as Steve was saying. So it's very, uh, yeah, very impressive. It's, it's the space that you really want a striker to be in. Um, and if he's converting those chances, you can't really have any complaints. You know, it's the rest of the team that need to sort of um, pick up the slack in, in that sense. Well, yeah, if you've got a guy scoring 30% of your goals, it's hard to say that he's the 
the main problem, I guess. I don't think he's any problem. I think he's the saviour, to be honest. Um, but yeah, Vlaovic has been excellent for, for Fiorentina this season. Um, moving on, um, and, and in the, um, the the Premier League edition of this uh, podcast, the, the standout stats one, we, we had a, a lengthy discussion about um, expected assists and, and what they are. Um, we're not going to go into depth on that on this one. Um, but just as a side point, one of the things that I found quite interesting um, was that Last season, Lazio's Luis Alberto uh, registered 15 assists in Serie A. Um, this season, he has a grand total of zero. That is despite him having 5.8 in expected assists. So, you know, you'd, you'd be expected to have six assists there based on the quality of the chances that Luis Alberto's created for his teammates. Um, that's incredibly unlucky. But I just thought, you know, he's not under 23, but I just thought that, you know, I'd... I'd, I'd wheel that one out as as something in my armory to say that that's been quite interesting in Serie A this season. Yeah, I actually went and had a look at this today when you sent me the rundown and I kind of found that his shot creation is down and it's predominantly from set pieces and dead balls. So I thought that was an interesting one that maybe, yeah, they're just a, a big chunk of his shot creation that he's lost is, is pretty much just set pieces, which is something that um, you know, when you're looking at a statistical standpoint, you you know you kind of discount a little bit because it's not you really creating something; it's you just being given the opportunity to create. Um, and then the other thing was that a lot um, Chiro Immobile's expected goals are down quite a lot this year. So I'm wondering whether you know part of the impact on his expected assists being converted into actual assists is um, he's creating chances for players that, that that are not Chiro Immobile and don't have that. Uh, finishing quality that uh, Immobile has, so yeah, potential things to to caveat the those results to uh, results with. Sorry, see that this is the forensic Serie A insight that you don't get anywhere else. This is what Steve brings to the table. This is why I can't do a Serie A episode without him going. Put me, put me on the pod. Put me on the pod. I want to discuss. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, just moving on though, away from expected goals and expected assists. Um, one of the metrics that we didn't discuss on the Premier League edition was uh, passes into the final third, uh, and that's predominantly by players you know who are going to be playing in defence or in defensive midfield. You know those those players who are making those expansive, progressive passes to try and create something. You know the the the, the ball that is passed to the assist maker essentially, um, and and. And um, the reason I mentioned Sassuolo earlier uh, when Steve brought the, that team up was that Manuel Locatelli um, has the most passes, most successful passes into the final third in Serie A this season with 198, um, which uh, fbref.com, they um, they define a pass into the final third as uh, completed passes that enter the third of the pitch closest to the opposition goal, which is very self-explanatory, very straightforward. Um, I did a little bit of watching of, of Locatelli for, for something different um, a, a little little while ago. And I mean, I'd, I'd kind of, he, not, he hadn't dropped off my radar because he was, you know, he's a prominent Serie A player, but since he'd broken through at Milan and then and then went to Sassuolo, I thought that was kind of a, a bit of a retrograde move for him. Um, but no, Sassuolo have been been really good um, these past few years. And I think Locatelli has been a big reason for that. Well, yeah, as we've, um, as we've seen covering the under 21 Euros and, and things like that, a lot of the players in that team are, are Sassuolo uh, academy graduates or products. Um, so the club is proving that they can, uh, yeah, develop players incredibly. And, and Locatelli is one of those guys that since he he, he, he arrived from from uh, Milan, he's become a not completely different, but a, a, he's just become so much more confident, so much more uh, able to control games, set the pace. 
Um, and he is, I think, one of the absolutely most slept on uh, midfielders in Europe, not even in, in just in Serie A. Uh, and I think there's going to be a, a big time war over his services in the summer, I think. Well, Juventus are 100% interested in him. I think Manchester City uh, are pretty keen as well from from some of the rumours that I've seen. Um, but yeah, his game has just got everything. His passing range is uh, huge. And you're talking about the completed passes in the final third of the pitch. Um, I think sometimes uh, you really need to you know, consider whether these are someone that's making a lot of passes out wide, whether they're central. Um because if you've got someone that can obviously make those passes into central areas that are that are typically more damaging, um, and that's something that Locatelli is fantastic at, uh, then it really you know increases their quality. And for someone that plays so deep in midfield, he creates a lot of chances. His expected assists is, is quite high, considering uh, that he's playing that register role, sitting deep in midfield. Um, yeah, can hit any pass possible. Um, pretty mobile for a big guy. Uh, and defensively, you know, can can marshal uh, as a six really well. Um, so, yeah, he's one of my absolute favourites at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, w- w- what you mentioned there in terms of where the, the, the this player in particular is, is passing, uh, whether it's out wide or into the central areas, you know, w- I mean, we could delve into the, the more advanced metrics of things such as expected threat and, and stuff like that. And I think Manuel Locatelli would probably rank quite highly in those in those regards because of where he's playing the essentially where he's playing the, these passes into. Um, you know, if, if you're if you're getting balls into feet in the in the half spaces in the um in the area just between the lines in front of the opposition's penalty area that that's pretty much you know you, you're in, you're within shooting territory from there um so obviously yeah i, c- I can see where you you're, you're saying about the the expected assists value being quite high for a, for a register um but you know h- how much importance would you place on on this as a as a metric steve uh, in terms of passes into the final third because you know we've we've got for fb ref on on their website if you haven't checked that out please do because it's it's excellent excellent resource um but if anybody hadn't seen there is um th- there's passes into the final third passes into the penalty area crosses into the penalty area um you know there's there's a lots of sort of different discernments um in terms of how these passes have been categorized Obviously, passes into the box, completed passes into the penalty area are, are going to be of, of greater value, but they're inherently going to be made by players who are playing further up the pitch. You know, your 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 number 10s, your wingers, your, your, your more advanced central midfielders. Um, so, I mean, how much importance do you place on, on passes into the final third? Yeah, I think I probably wouldn't care about them really at all for a attacking midfielder or a winger or a striker or anything like that um, wouldn't be a metric that I probably go to is they're, they're the passes they're supposed to be making. That's where they're playing. But I think for a, a deep lying playmaker, a creative playmaker from deep, a center back, um, even potentially, you know, a right back, like someone like Trent Alexander-Arnold wouldn't surprise me if he's um, passed into the final third or off the charts high. Um so I think, yeah, someone playing in Locatelli's position, it's it's quite an important statistic um, because it's really showing their their ability to progress to play forward and and, and be direct. Um, so yeah, I, I I think yeah, always need to really be thinking about statistics and contextualizing them for a player's role, a player's position, um, all these different little things, rather than just trying to compare, um, you know 
two players playing in different positions or doing completely different things um, and then comparing them with one metric when, you know, the, the, there's always going to be different factors that affect someone's ability to perform uh, well in a certain metric. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's essentially what I was trying to gauge, trying to sort of vocalize there in, in, in my little bit. But but yeah, essentially, we're not saying that just because a player who is a striker doesn't make too many passes into the final third, that doesn't make them a good player. It's because they're already in the final third more often than not. So they're not going to rank highly in terms of that metric. So um, it would be, yeah, it's 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 only appropriate for, for players in in, in certain positions um, to, to judge them based on on that metric, the same as passes into the penalty area, da, 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 all that sort of thing. Um, that yeah, it's it's important to um, to contextualise, as, as Steve says. Um, but in in terms of is there any in terms of Locatelli, is there anything that you that you dislike potentially about his game? Uh, you know, is he, is he a player that we're going to be seeing at a Champions League level anytime soon? Because obviously, if if you've gone from Milan to Sassuolo, is there going to be some sort of redemption arc where he returns to a Champions League quality club? You know, or, or, or are we going to see a late charge from Sassuolo? I mean, unlikely this season, but in future in future campaigns. Well, in terms of weaknesses, I think the one thing that's hard to gauge because it's not really his role, but it might be important in a. Um, a more dominant team is his ability to kind of step out of that position in midfield and, and uh, you know, press a bit higher um, and then kind of just press deeper into the final third and camp himself in there and control the game from that position. Um, so that would probably be it's not even, I wouldn't say a weakness. It's just something we kind of don't get to see as much from the role that he currently plays. Um, but yeah, in terms of where he's going to end up, I think he's definitely ready for that Champions League level. He would he would stroll into Juventus's midfield, for example, and probably be the best of all of them. So, hundred um, percent, yeah, ready ready for that level, in my opinion. Would you Would you be happy if Juve signed him in the summer? Oh, hundred percent, yes. I, I as I said before, I think he's one of the most uh, slept on players, slept slept on midfielders in in the whole whole of Europe. So, I think he could walk into Juventus's midfield. I think he'd do well at Man City. I think he'd be a, a player that Pep would absolutely love to to have. So, um, yeah, he's ready. Mm, very interesting. Okay, well, we'll see how that pans out then over the next few months. Um, but um, moving on to, to the next metric uh, that we've got here, and it's uh, goal-creating actions. Uh, and I'll start off again by this one, uh, by um, emphasizing what goal-creating actions is defined as uh, by fbref.com. Uh, and they are the two offensive actions directly leading to a goal, such as passes, dribbles, and drawing fouls. So essentially... Um, the two offensive actions, meaning, you know, as it, as it lists there, um, a, a player who uh, registers the assist, you know, provides that pass, that would be a goal-creating action. And if that player had received the ball um, from another t- another player, the pre-assist, that would also go down as a goal-creating action for that for those two players. Um, or if the uh, a player will dribble and then makes a pass, um, very much like Adama Traore does, um, then they, that would count as two goal-creating actions for that individual player if the person on the end of the pass scores a goal. Um, but the player that we've got in uh, this in this metric uh, that we've picked out, uh, Steve, is Mikhail Damsgaard, um, who is averaging 0.64 goal-creating actions per 90 for Sampdoria, who are 10th in the Serie A table. Um, but Damsgaard's... Um, 
goal-creating actions per 90. He's just outside the top 10 across Serie I think he's around 15th. Um, but the reason that we've picked him out is because um, he's 20 years old and, and doesn't regularly get full 90s. Um, he's made 14 starts this season in Serie A, but he's also come on in 13 games. So it's quite a quite a split there under Claudio Ranieri. Um Steve, is there you know is is there an area of Mikel Damsgaard's game that we like? You know, is because obviously these are these are standout stats. That's the the nature of the this this podcast. That's why we're discussing him. You know, is there is there something from a, a stylistic and optics viewpoint that that you perhaps like about his game? Well, yeah, I think he, you've got in the notes here that of his ten goal creating actions, three of them are off the dribble, which I think is. Uh, it's, it wouldn't surprise me if that's quite a high percentage, um, and yeah, I think that's that's a he's he's he, he's a real moments player. From I haven't watched a huge amount of him, but from what I have seen, he will just do something really amazing in a quick burst, and you just think, wow, this guy, his the his potential is just like off the charts. If he could do that uh, pretty regularly, then um, you know he'd be an absolutely mega player. But you know, I think you really need to take into account that he's kind of just arrived in Serie A. He's 20 years old. He's come from uh, Norgeland in Denmark. You know, the, the step up in quality is, you know, massive. We've seen, uh, you know, Halgo at Milan this year hardly play after he came from Norway. It's a, it's a you know, from the Scandinavian leagues to Serie A, it's a, it's a big jump. So I think playing 1,400 minutes, I think that's just a bit around half of of the available minutes is, is a really really good return to be honest um adapting to Serie A especially you know in Ranieri's system that you know he's playing that 442 uh it's that he kind of similar to Leicester to Leicester days where he's you know trying to sit back and hit on the break and um you know and he's relying on Damsgaard to do a lot of defensive work defensive work as well in in that so um yeah to be and he's been pretty reliable defensively as well to go with his uh, bursts of, 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 you know, really good actions going forward. So, yeah, I think you've got to take some, uh, you know, positives out of, you know, your first season Serie A as a 20-year-old and, and and putting up some pretty good numbers and being a pretty good contributor on a mid-table team. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the that's the crux of the issue is that, you know, he's been a pretty decent contributor to a mid-table side um, who haven't really, you know, they, it's at no point have they really been threatened by relegation. They haven't and they won't be threatening the European places. It's very much a, it's just a functional team. Um, as you, as you say, you know, they're, they're set up well under Ranieri. And the thing that I like about Damsgaard is that he just looks like it. Whenever you watch him, he just looks like a very, very hardworking player. He will run and run and run. Um, and that's across a n- numerous positions. You know, he's played right wing, he's played left wing, which is predominantly where he, he features for Samp. Um, he's played as an attacking midfielder, um, as sort of more centrally as a shadow striker um, across those 27 games this season um but the reason that I, I i picked him out or rather that his name probably unconsciously that his name stood out was because um during the last international break um you know in a a 90 minute performance for denmark um he he scored twice and he got two assists in the same game against moldova in that i think it was an eight nil win denmark registered there um and i think well you know that that's probably why he stuck out a little bit you know there were there were other under 23 players who were in in and around the top 20, 25 players for goal-creating actions per 90. But Damsgaard stood out because I'd seen him recently and I thought, well, 
yeah, he's he's a player that I, that I quite like. Um, and just touching on that defensive output that you mentioned, Steve, that's quite an important point, I think, when it comes to Damsgaard because, you know, in, in terms of successful pressures, he is, in Serie A, the player with the most attempted and the most successful pressures um, aged 21 or under in Serie A this season with 452. Now, to, to, to anybody who's not sort of diligently recording uh, Serie A pressures every single game week, 452 means absolutely nothing. So in terms of posturing that against players that we know are, are really hardworking, really uh, really big pressers, um, Patrick Bamford for Leeds United this season in the Premier League, uh, I think people have, have sort of cottoned on to how demanding his role is. He's made 459 pressures uh, this season. Uh, and, and Watkins has made 455. So you factor in that those two players for Leeds and Aston Villa have have started a lot, lot more. They've played a lot more football this season and Damsgaard's very much up there with them. That paints a picture of a player who is, uh, you know, just giving absolutely no peace to, to the to the players on that on that side of the pitch. Um and I quite, I just quite like that. I like the the fact that you know, he's he's in a he's in a new environment um, in, in Serie A. It's obviously a massive step up, and he's you know he's he's doing his best to show his worth. And yeah, I'm always going to be sort of drawn to players like that who are, are produ- I mean, as we've as we've discussed with the goal creating actions, are producing decent levels of output, but are also putting in the hard yards to to actually get there. So yeah, he's a he's a he's a player that I very much like. Kind of a little bit of a bit of a uh, Chiesa about him. That energy player that that then can go forward and, and be pretty damaging as well. Yeah, an energy man. I quite like that term. I, I have nicked it off somebody on Twitter. I can't remember who it is, and I have said that recently. But yeah, an energy man. Um, I think is a good way of describing him. Speaking of pressures, though, um, for, for following on from Mikel Damsgaard, there, um, I think it's I think it's pertinent that we discuss Lautaro Martinez before he turns 24, which I believe he does in the next week or so. So depending on when you've listened to this, um, he, he may have already turned 24 and, you know, for, it'll be, it'll be a sad day for scouting football because he's been a, he's been a very, very good servant to us over the years. Um, this season he scored 14 Serie A goals. He's got five assists. So a very, very strong return. Um, obviously a very, very good partnership with Romelu Lukaku uh, and into this season who himself has 26 goal involvements. Um, but the reason we're going to talk about Lotaro is because um, he's, he has the most pressures in the attacking third this season of any player across Syria. Um, you know, 171 uh, in, in sort of one third of the pitch, his area. Um, and I think that's what underpins his game, really. You know, he is just that terrier-like, you know, really niggly presence um, that, that that makes him and, and, and Lukaku such a good double act. I don't know if that's something that you've also come across, Steve, or is it something, am, am I am I just imparting the most obvious observation of Lautaro Martinez and Romelu Lukaku there? Well, I think, well, in terms of the pressures, I think uh, the reason why he's so uh, effective in that sense is Inter aren't a super high-pressing team, but they press very, very smartly. And Antonio Conte is one of the kings of uh, a system that he's developed over a long time where when the opportunity is there, his team will press really hard and he does it with uh, Martinez and he does it with Hakimi principally um, that really, really harry for possession. Um, but then as soon as the opportunity uh, falls away or there was never any opportunity in the first place, his team are so quick to drop back, regain their shape and and 
you know, go to win, try to win the ball back more functionally in their uh, in their defensive third or in midfield. And so, yeah. And then in terms of working with Lukaku, I think the kind of the best way to sum up their partnership is that they don't get in each other's way. They both have the things that they're good at, but they really never kind of are in each other's space. So I think, yeah, I think that's kind of been the key to the success. And they they kind of score different goals where um, Lukaku loves the kind of cutbacks from Hakimi. He loves the bursting uh, past the defense off the shoulder, whereas Lukaku, uh, Martinez will kind of looking out for fortuitous moments where he can get onto something in the box and just create something out of nothing. Um, so yeah, the a great strike partnership. Conte has his team that he just loves, and it works. And uh, yeah, they should stroll on and win the title this season. Yeah, I definitely think it's important to to stress that Inter are not necessarily a high pressing team or a really vigorously press uh, vigorous pressing team, um, which sort of highlights why Lautaro Martinez is you know is is output in that area in terms of pressures in the attacking third is so impressive um, because just getting up the um, it's quite topical that we mention this because Sampdoria are top of the uh, attempted pressures in Serie A this season um, and Inter are all the way down in uh, 15th, I believe. I think they're, yeah, I was going to say, I think they were bottom bottom 25%. Yeah, there's just, I think they'll, they'll have a lot of forward attacking third pressures, I think, because they will look to win the ball back in the first few seconds of losing it. Um, but then... Yeah, then I don't think they'll have many defensive or midfield pressures because that's when they'll sit back and try and, uh, you know, let the game come to them and, and nip in at an opportune moment rather than uh, pushing to win the ball back. Whereas I think Sampdoria are a team where uh, they want to press, win the ball back and break quickly. And it just suits, yeah, Ranieri's style better, getting those counter-attacking opportunities then when he can get balls in uh, in behind and, 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 yeah, and send players out wide, get crosses in. Um, but yeah, so it's two different two different systems. But I tell you what, for for Conte, he's got the the team drilled perfectly, and they they just know exactly what to do. Well, yeah, fancy that they are fifth for pressures in the attacking third. So yeah, they're I think very much we, we, we've hit the nail on the head there, essentially. Well, that just about finishes things for this week's uh, podcast. Uh, standout Serie A stats. Um, if you did enjoy this episode, please do consider recommending us to uh, a friend, family member, and anybody else who has an interest in football. Um, I'm sure that they'll uh, they'll find the, the rapport between myself and Steve as heartwarming as it is for us. Um, but yeah, it's been uh, it's been another enjoyable one to record. I will be back next week. Um, do also check out our Patreon. Uh, our subscriber-only podcasts are on there and there will be uh, a new one up there by the time you're listening to this. And that will be a summary of the Under-21 European Championships group stage uh, with myself and Steve. Um, do not miss that. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, in the meantime, stay safe, take care and bye for now.